0: That society where pastor and faith are um, right now, it is a sacral society. A sacral society. Um, we live in a composite society. This is new. This is new. Get a little. Start with a little history lesson. This is brand new. Um, the New Testament presents a composite society. What that means is is we live with two loyalties. There's a loyalty to the church, and then there's a loyalty to the state. The state demands loyalty of its citizens. God has given the state a sword to wield on behalf of the state that keeps the citizens in boundaries, and it's for the good of all citizens in this society. How would you like to wake up tomorrow and find that there's no police officers, there are no laws, It'd be total chaos? Um, and we also, as Christians, uh, have a second loyalty. Our first loyalty would be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's new. That is a New Testament model. Prior to the New Testament, there were no composite societies at all in fact historians tell us that there's never been a true composite society until the united states of america you see in a sacral society religion and the state are one and the state wields the sword on behalf of religion that's what you find in islam that's what you find in any of those types of societies in fact Did you not know Great Britain is also a sacral society? Say what? Yes. Great Britain is a sacral society. Great Britain, the king, Henry VIII, when he took over power, he declared himself the head of the church. And even to this day, it is not the people in the churches that select the Archbishop of Canterbury and those guys, that is an appointment that's done by the queen. A sacral society. We live in a composite society, a New Testament society. And even back, this dropped out of Christianity early on. Even in 250 AD, one of the early church fathers, Origen, some of you are familiar with that name, said, hey, it's time for the Roman Empire to embrace Christianity, and everybody in the empire will become Christians, and God will slay all nonbelievers. That's the early church father, Origen in 250 AD. In 325 AD, Constantine took over as the Roman emperor and did just that. Did just that. He decided that there were too many religions, and if the empire was going to grow, if the empire was going to succeed, there had to be one religion, and so he picked Christianity. He thought that baptism saved you, so he marched his Soldiers through rivers of water to baptize them, and he placed them over all the churches. Then he gathered up all the Bibles. For a thousand years, there was no open revelation, and he wanted to make everybody in the empire Christian. How do you do that? Well, you have to have a ritual, you have to have a rite, a ceremony. That's where infant baptism came from. Are you listening? That's where infant baptism came from, because you would have this ceremonial washing immediately after your birth, and that would make you part of the Christian empire, Christendom. It's a contracted word of Christianity and the kingdom, Christendom. There is no such thing as a Christian society, a Christian nation. Did you hear what I said? There is no such thing as a Christian nation. People want to want to portray the United States of America as a Christian nation. It is not. There's never been one. Never. No such thing. There are only Christians living in a nation and depending on the numbers of Christians living in that nation, they have more or less influence. But there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Now, some of you want to argue with that. Read your history. There's no such thing. This is the great experiment. The composite society that we live in is the great experiment. The Puritans came here. Some people call them pilgrims. The Puritans came here, and they came out of the sacral society of Europe, of Great Britain, and they established a new testament model of a separation between church and state where the state no longer wields the sword on behalf of religion this is the great experiment it's a great experiment this is new in our world we understand that we live in a Composite society, where Terry and Faith are this morning, is a sacral society. You want to know how that works? If you're not Muslim, you could be killed. That's how that works. Because the state wields a sword on behalf of religion. Now, I had an opportunity to read a book. I'm always reading a book. Uh, Another book, this... uh, just recently called Bloody Mary's Martyrs. Bloody Mary's Martyrs. And this piggybacks right on to the introduction. It's about Queen Mary Tudor. Queen Mary Tudor took over the throne of England in on February 4th, 19, or 1555. And she reigned for 45 months. And during that time, she killed burned at stake uh, more than 283 people, more than 283 people she put to death. And the reason that she did that, she believed strongly in this sacral society. It was the right, the divine right of kings to wield the sword on behalf of the king's religion. Her religion was Romanism. And she was really upset with the Reformation. The Reformation, Luther had nailed his theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517, some 38 years earlier. And over that period of time, the Reformation had swept through Europe and had also swept into Great Britain. And she had a problem with that. And as a result, some 283 Protestants, who believed in the gospel, were martyred, 227 men and 56 women. There are records that indicate that there were also four children involved. I want to read just a a few of the best-known names of some of those that were martyred. And again, you can find much of this information in Fox's classic book of martyrs. You can also find it in uh, a book by Bishop J.C. Ryle called Light from Old Paths. It's a wonderful, wonderful, thank you, brother. It's wonderful. He don't want me to have that little white stuff around my mouth. Uh, (laughs) Oh, y'all wouldn't tell me. But but a book by J.C. Ryle called Light from Old Paths. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. One of these people that was martyred, the Marian martyrs as they're called, was preacher by the name of John Rogers. John Rogers was burned in Smithfield on Monday, the 4th of February. He was the first martyr that launched Bloody Mary's 45-month reign of terror. His crime was he had assisted Tyndale and Coverdale in bringing a most important version of the English Bible, a version commonly known as Matthew's Bible. I'm blessed to have a copy of that. Old, 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 I'm old too. Uh, (laughs) And he put it under the title of Matthew's Bible as a synonym to try and hide. And it didn't bear his name, but he was condemned as Roger's alias Matthews. He was the first one to be burned at stake. He was led through the streets of the parish where he had done the work of a pastor, and along the way stood his wife and ten children one, a newborn baby in the arms of his wife. As he passed his children, he was unable to do anything but to look at them and smile and say a brief word of greeting because of the diabolical cruelty of Bishop Bonner, who had flatly refused him any opportunity to see her, his wife or children while he was in prison. So he only glanced at them and walked on calmly to the stake, reciting Psalm 51. Psalm 51. He walked, says Bishop Ryle, steadily, unflinchingly into a fiery grave, and upon his arrival, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. Even Noel Ely, the French ambassador, wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to his death as though he were, quote, walking to his wedding. Ridley says in the book, Quote, on his last night in his prison cell at Newgate, he slept so soundly that his jailer had to wake him in the morning and tell him it was time for him to dress and prepare to leave for the place of execution. He was happy because he knew that however much he had to suffer in the fire, he would go directly to heaven. Death came quickly. He held his hands in the fire and went through the motions of washing them as if the fire had been cold water. Then he withdrew them from the flames, held them aloft in the air, and recited a prayer until he died soon afterward. Then there was a man by the name of John Hooper, another preacher of the gospel. When he arrived at the spot of execution, he was allowed to pray, though strictly forbidden to speak to the people. A box was placed before John Hooper containing a full pardon if he would only recant. His answer was, away with it. Away with it. He was then fastened to the stake by an iron around his waist and fought his last fight with the king of terrors. Three times the faggots had to be lighted because they would not burn properly. Three quarters of an hour the noble Christian suffered, endured the mortal agony. Quote, neither moving backward, forward, nor side to side, but only praying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me and beating his breast with one hand till it was burned to a stump. 7,000 were there to watch this occurrence, and a blind boy said, quote, you, sir, have enabled me to see the light of the gospel. Then there were two famous compatriots in the gospel, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. Ridley arrived on the ground first, and seeing Latimer come... "'come afterwards, ran to him and embraced him, saying, "'Be of good heart, brother, "'for God will either assuage the fury of the flames "'or else he will strengthen us to abide it.'" Ridley's last words before the the fire was lighted were these, "'Heavenly Father, I give thee most hearty thanks "'that thou hast called me to a profession of thee "'even unto death. "'I beseech thee, Lord God, "'have mercy on this realm of England.'" And deliver the same from our enemies. Latterman's last words were like the blast of a trumpet which rings even to this day. Quote, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day by God's grace light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. And when the flames began to rise, Ridley cried out with a loud voice, Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Lord, receive my spirit. Latimer cried vehemently on the other side of the stake, Father of heaven, receive my soul. Latimer died soon. An old man of 80 years old, of age, took very little to set his spirit free from its earthly torment. Ridley suffered long and painfully from bad management of the fire by those who attended the execution at length however the flames reached the vital parts of him and he fell at latimer's feet and they were at rest jc ryle says they were lovely and beautiful in their lives and in death they were not divided and there's an amazing story of a girl by the name of paratine Couchin. the channel islands were part of queen mary's realm this is the summer of 1556. A case arose there. There was a woman by the name of Catherine Couchin, and she lived in the Channel Islands with her two daughters, Paratine and Guillemine. Through a series of circumstances, a woman reported Catherine and her daughters as heretics. And the three women were convicted of heresy and sentenced to burn. Paratine did not tell the judges at her trial that she was pregnant. When the fire was lit, The heat of the fire caused Paratine to give birth to her baby son who fell onto the faggots while the flames burned around him. One of the spectators rushed forward to save the baby and pulled him out of the fire and laid him on the grass. A man-at-arms picked him up, and he was handed from one official to another till he was given to the sheriff in charge of the execution. The sheriff ordered his man to throw the baby back into the fire and he was burned with his mother, his grandmother, and his aunt. Well, they are just a few of the 283 martyrs that were burned during the reign of Queen Mary Tudor. And why did this happen? What was their crime? What was the charge? All of them, writes Bishop Ryle, were burned because of one matter. They refused to admit and believe the doctrine at the center of the mass. The Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Now, if you were here last week, I explained that. So if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get the tape. Not because I, I preached it, but because all that information is in there and you didn't want that background. Transubstantiation is this. At the ordination of a priest, the bishop gives him power, magical power, to change the elements, the bread and the wine, into the very literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Transubstantiation. He says the magic words, Hocus corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. And when he gives that incantation, magically the, the elements, the bread, the wafer, and the blood turn into literally the body of Christ. And these people didn't believe that. And as a result, they were burned. Listen to what John Rogers said. You can find this in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Their actual words are recorded. Quote, I was asked whether I believe in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior, Christ, that was born of the Virgin Mary and hanged on the cross really and substantially. I answered, I think it could be false. It should be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise than corporally, but corporally Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporeally in your sacrament. And therefore he was condemned and burned. Here are the words of Nicholas Ridley, Bishop Ridley. This was a sentence against him. The said Nicholas Ridley affirms, maintains, and stubbornly defends certain opinions, assertions, and heresies contrary to the word of God and the received faith of the church, as in denying the true and natural body and blood of Christ to be the sacrament of the altar, and secondarily, in affirming the substance of the bread and wine to remain after the words of consecration, end quote. And so he was burned. All of them were brought to account on whether or not they believed the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. And as a result... Of that, they were burned. This was in the 1500s. In 1826, the last martyr of that system was recorded in Italy, a guy by the name of Caetano Rapold. He was burned at stake in 1826 for not taking his students to mass, for not making them kneel before the host, and for saying, praise be to God instead of Hail Mary. Now, the host is what these elements become once the priest has said the magic words of incantation. It becomes the host, and it's kept in a little box that they call the tabernacle, okay? And I was watching one of my favorite shows the other day, Bless Me, Father, by Father Duddlesworth, who was this raspy old Roman priest uh, and and I, I learned so much. I mean, it's, it's amazing how when you study in these kind of things, God brings it in, in front of you. And, and, and he, was, he was teaching on the Mass. He was lecturing on the Mass. And, and, and I was able to confirm my facts from, from Father Duddlesworth. It was just wonderful, wonderful <laughs> how God brings these things before you. I want to cut across a lot of territory One of the giant issues at the heart of the Reformation was this issue of the Mass. That was a giant issue. Remember last week we talked about the source of authority was a giant issue at the heart of the Reformation. The Reformers said that Christ is the head of the church. That's what the Bible says. And Romanism said, no, the Pope is the head of the church. And so that source of authority... Was an issue. Second, a large issue was the issue of the mass, the mass, what we call communion. The reformers believe that all one needs to do to evaluate a religious system is to see what they believe and understand what they advocate, and they can be measured against the word of God. The word of God is the final court of appeals beyond which you cannot go for the Christian. The word of God. Paul said to the Berean, that the Bereans were more nobler than others because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if those things were true. And the guy preaching was the Apostle Paul. They didn't take Paul's words for it. And I encourage you not to take anybody's word. I don't care who stands here. It doesn't matter. Don't take his word for it. Go to the Word of God. Search the Word of God. So today, like the Reformers did before, before us, we're going to examine the Word of God and the Mass and compare it with Scriptures. So take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, we're just going to hit two verses for the sake of time. I encourage you to read this whole thing by your, uh, for yourself and study it for yourself. So to begin with, I want to establish one thing, that is the nature of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The nature of that sacrifice, the nature of it. Romans 6:8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never, never, to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin how many times? Once. Once Once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So by one sacrifice, Jesus paid the price for sin. As it was either mark or roger said earlier this morning on the cross if you can find it in john 19:30 he said it is finished and since the perfect tense of the greek language it means it covers past present and future it cannot be undone it need not be redone it's absolutely perfect it is finished finished that was the cross so jesus died Once, the operative word there is once. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, much to be gained here. We don't have time to even touch it, but I want to get it in front of you, and I encourage you. The book of Hebrews goes into great detail about several things, several themes. One of the themes is Jesus Christ better than. Jesus Christ better than the angels. Jesus Christ better than Moses. Jesus Christ in the new covenant better than the old covenant. Jesus Christ as our high priest better than the old testament priesthood. Okay? Jesus Christ better than is the primary theme of the Hebrews and if you look at verse 11, it talks about the new priesthood. Now, perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another, that's the Greek word heteros, homo same, heteros, different, another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek. And we certainly don't have time to explain Melchizedek. That's meat. That is wonderful, wonderful meat. You, you want to know how much you've matured as a Christian? I can tell you. <laughs> See how much you understand about Melchizedek. Just read the story of Melchizedek. If you understand what God is saying there, then you're well on your way to, to, to maturing in Christ. If you don't, you've got a long way to go. And most of us do. Had no beginning and no end. <laughs> okay. Uh, was, and Jesus Christ was a type of priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you remember the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, they had to be under the they had to be from the tribe of Levite. Jesus Christ was not from the tribe of Levi Levite. He was from the tribe of David. So he ushered in a new priesthood with a new covenant. A new covenant. Dropped down. verse 23. The former priest on one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for us, for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did, he, Jesus, did how many times? Once for all. For all, when he offered who? Himself. Once for all. Again, the operative word there is once. You can read it again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By this will, that is the will of God, which Jesus came to do, as it says in the prior verse, verse 9. He offered himself once, once. The finality of this is so clear. Jesus came, he made one sacrifice, which perfected forever those that were set apart for him, those who trust in him, those who rely on him. One sacrifice. All the Old Testament sacrifices did was portray and develop an almost passionate longing for the one sacrifice that would forever take away sin. The Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifice again and again and again and again. There was a remembrance of sin, but no removal. A remembrance, but no removal. Every time, if you had to do something over and over and over, you would be constantly reminded that that debt was not paid. But he made one sacrifice was perfected forever. He made one offering for all, never to be repeated. Never to re- be repeated. The Old Testament had a priesthood, an altar, and sacrifices, and we talked about that last weekend, and they were only shadows of the one that would come. God punctuated the one sacrifice by destroying the, temples in, the temple in 70 A.D., and he used the Romans to do it to destroy that old system, totally destroy it, and he destroyed the altars. That's why there's no altar in this church, because there's no altar in Christianity. Altar is a place of sacrifice. You are to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, Romans 12:1 and 2. We're offering him the sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips, the scripture says. But there is no altar in Christianity. Because Jesus did away with that. God destroyed the temple. There is no temple in which the presence of God dwells anymore. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that you, Christian, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in bricks and mortar. He dwells in you, believer, in you. And so there are no altars, there are no temples, and there are no priests. Except the one high priest, Jesus Christ himself. Oh, let me correct myself. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are God's kleros, a royal priesthood. Every believer is part of the priesthood. You know, I had some of Joseph Smith's priests to come visit me at my house. The Mormons, their priests, that's what they said. I mean, this guy wasn't even old enough to shave. Yeah. Well, I'm Elder Hinkenstein. Oh. <laughs> and this is Elder Cotton. Well, good. Welcome. And, and, and I'm Bishop Jim and that's priestess for Mona. <laughs> They were like, huh? <laughs> you see, they say that Joseph Smith, through a vision, extra-biblical revelation, that they placed on a level with scripture, that he reconstituted the priesthood. Wow. God destroyed the priesthood permanently as a class of priests, as an order. There is no such thing. does not exist. There's no altar. That's why there's no altar calls. I've had people say, well, how come y'all don't have an altar call in y'all's church? Because there ain't no altar in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we don't have it. And we ain't got no priests. The not a priest. He's not the mediator between you and God. 1 Timothy 2 and 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's it. There are no more. There's nobody that stands between you and God. So now that we don't have an altar call, there won't be one. There's no altar in here. (laughs) It all came to an end at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Any sacrifices being made today are unbiblical. Any priests today are false claimants. We are a royal priesthood, all believers. We believers all have immediate access to God. Now, in spite of that, the Roman system has devised a priesthood. It's built an altar in every church on the face of the earth. As if they've reinvented the Levitical priesthood. They've reestablished what God himself destroyed. And it's a variation of the priesthood. And I say it's a variation because it is mingled with cultic, pagan mystery and idolatry. The mass is a sacrifice which can be made only on an altar and only by a priest. Now, how important is the Mass? I quote from the Catholic Catechism, quote, the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. That is to say, it is the origin of the Christian life, and it's the high point. It was Cardinal Ratzinger, now calling himself Pope Benedict, Who said, quote, the Mass is a sum and substance of our faith. This is not peripheral. This is not on the edge. This is doctrine. The Mass is an offering, a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, over and over and over and over every time it's said. It is a sacrifice. It is a real offering, the dogma tells us, of the true body and the true blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say he's there down to the last toenail and eyelash. The priest has some authority to call our Savior down from heaven and sacrifice him again. What did we read in the Word of God? How many times did Jesus die? Once. Once. And see, this was a big issue for the Reformers. They said at the outset, the Mass is a deception because there are no more sacrifices, there are no more altars, there are no more temples in which God dwells, and there's no more priesthood. It is therefore a false sacrifice on a false altar in a false temple by a false priest. The Reformers declared that at the heart, the Mass is a denial of the singular sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Don't miss that. Singular sacrifice of Christ on the cross. John O'Brien was a great author, a Roman Catholic priest, and he's helped understand the importance of the Mass. He's written a book called The Faith of Millions. The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Religion. It's a classic work. It's what O'Brien writes. When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim of, for the sins of man. It is a power exercised by the priest greater than that of saints and angels greater than that of seraphim and cherubim indeed is the power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary while the blessed virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim you ever wonder why you always see crucifixes and not an empty cross In Romanism, that's where it's rooted, the eternal victim. As if Christ dies, and since there's a mass said every four minutes somewhere on earth, then Christ dies millions of times every day, according to the dogma. You see why the Reformers had a problem with that? And notice. The comparison with the Virgin Mary. She brought Christ into the world one time. The priest can bring him down from his throne thousands of times according to the dogma. Continuing the reading. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. yikes, of what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vice regent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of alter priestess, for the priest is and should be another Christ. Bible warns about another Christ. Bible warns about that. That's what's going on in the Mass. That's what the Reformers had a problem with. Now, all this goes back for its ratification to the Council of Trent in the 16th century. And the Council of Trent, and you can Google on that and you can read this for yourself, but the Council of Trent actually, uh, the reason that it, it's, it's so wonderful a document is it gives short, succinct definitions of Roman dogma. And the church recognizes the Council of Trent as authoritative. When Trent speaks, the church speaks. Okay, when the church speaks, it's infallible. It cannot be changed. We talked about that last week. They promulgated at this particular session, the 13th session of Trent, October 1551, and this was in direct opposition to the Reformation so these canons provide short, succinct definitions of Roman Catholic doctrine. Canon number one: If anyone denies that in the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist are contained truly, really, and substantially the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and consequently the whole Christ, but says that He is in it only as a sign, or figure, or force, let him be anathema. Anathema is word for Damned. If you believe anything other than the fact that after the words of consecration, that the elements are anything other than the true body and blood and divinity and soul of Christ, you're damned. That's what it says. Canon number two. If anyone says that in the sacred and holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of the bread and wine remains conjointly with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, that they're both there, and denies that wonder and singular change of the whole substance of the bread into the body and the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the appearances only of bread and wine remaining, which change the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. Can number eight, if anyone says that Christ received in the Eucharist is received spiritually only and not also sacramentally, in other words, it is a sacrifice for sin, and not also sacramentally and really let him be anathema. And we're not going to go through all of these. I challenge you to go out and read these for yourself. They're there. They're there. And you say, well... You know, you're talking about 16 centuries ago. Is that still the teaching of the church? Absolutely. Absolutely, that's the teaching of the church. Because when the church speaks, it's infallible. It cannot change. Cannot be changed. Impossible. So you go out and you find any modern writer, Carl Keating is a very popular Roman Catholic writer. I've read a lot of his stuff, Carl Keating... Uh, Peter Kreef is another one. Um, You go out and, and, and read any of that, and you'll find that these are still the canons and the doctrine of the church. Here's a paragraph from the current catechism. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priest who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once on the altar of the cross is offered in an unbloody manner. An unbloody manner. Let me read what the Word of God has to say about that in Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 22, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You see why the reformers had such a problem with this? It goes on and on and on. The Catechism quotes Vatican II. Vatican II, which was convened by Pope John Paul, says, quote, As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. It is a redeeming sacrifice as is the cross. What utter chaos and confusion. So where do you look for your salvation? Where do you look? To which sacrifice? To the one that you had today? The one that you'll have tomorrow, next week? Where do you look for your salvation? No wonder there's no assurance of salvation in that system because you could possibly be. How could you ever be assured which sacrifice was the one that secured your salvation? It goes on to say that if the priest doesn't have a pure intention when he offers the Mass, it's invalid. Wow. Finding a pure priest is a pretty tough thing. Pretty tough thing. They quickly add that at least some small proportion, by some small proportion, your sins are remitted. And they have to add that. You know why? Because you have to pay for the mass. You have to pay for the mass. And it'd be a real bummer to try and get people to pay for something if they know there's a possibility that it doesn't work. Okay? And you pay different... Amounts for different masses. There's the nuptial mass for marriage, you pay a lot for that. There's the votive mass, which is the normal routine stuff. Then there's the, the requiem, which is a mass for the dead. Okay. It's a mass that that is offered for dead saints to intercede on our behalf. Okay. Isaiah put that to rest in Isaiah 8:19. He said. Why seek ye counsel from the dead for the living? Should not a people appeal to their God? So there's all these different, ma- and then there's masses that it can be said by the hierarchical structure, you know, by a bishop or a cardinal or somebody like, and that'll cost you more. Okay, that's how the coffers of the church are filled. So, people come back again and again and again and again and again and again for these masses. And you have to pay for that. And <clears throat> in the past, in the Roman tradition, you had to abstain from solid food before midnight if you were going to have an early mass because they didn't want Christ mingled with whatever else you'd eaten. Isn't it interesting that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper right after they had had a huge meal? Right after. I think now it's down to an hour. You have to wait for an hour after you've eaten, but So, what's happening here? The reformer cited that priests replaced preachers, an altar replaced the pulpit, doctrine is replaced by ritual ceremony. Romanism is still a sacral society. Still a sacral society. Before Vatican II, the Mass had to be said in Latin. Because Christ was never imparted by preaching of the Word. Listen, He was imparted by the ritual of the Mass. It was not about truth to the mind. It was not about faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. What is a central event in a true church? It's the preaching of the Word of God. What is the central piece of furniture in a true church? You're looking at it. It's this right here. Not an altar. Walk into any Roman cathedral, and this is off to the side, and in the center is an altar, and that tells you what's central. That tells you where the focus is. Here is the pulpit. Because the preaching of the Word of God is central. What's the central purpose of the central event in a true church? To preach the Word of God clearly to the mind so that people can understand. What's the central function in a sacral religion, a sacral society? It's a priestly trans- transaction in which God is somehow infused in a cracker, or in a wafer, and eaten. It's not clarity, it's mystery. It's hocus-pocus. All you have to do to receive Christ is drop your lower jaw. Why is this so concerning? I'll tell you why. Because the destiny of the human soul is at stake here. The destiny of the human soul I recently went in Ramona's old job. She's always dragging me around somewhere. But uh, she lets me go with her. It's cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting until I retire, Roger, and she can treat me to the lifestyle to which I'd like to become accustomed. <laughs> so it doesn't happen. <laughs> her brother's testifying. He knows. <laughs> but uh, we went to Miller'sville cuz I had to call Al and ask where it was Miller's bird it's up on the other side of Halifax Miller's bird okay i didn't know where it was <laughs> and and they uh the guy was one of Ramona's subordinate supervisors that had died and and she had shared the gospel with him and they had talked about the gospel and and he confirmed that he had surrendered to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he'd come to the gospel uh, out of the Roman system. And, and when we got there, the 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 ceremony was in a of his, his funeral was in a Roman church, and and because his wife was still part of the system. And I remember sitting there watching all the ceremonial rites. You know, the incense, which you don't find in the scriptures. You don't find that in Christianity. The consecration of the host, you don't find that in Christianity. And I'm watching this ceremony, and, and I was brought to tears. Brought to tears. And I'm sure that most of the people there thought, well, you know, he's, he's really sad at the passing of that. I didn't know that man. To my knowledge, I'd never met him. I mean, I'm sure she introduced me somewhere, but I I didn't know the guy. But my heart was broken over these hundreds of people, hundreds of people that were trusting in this ritual, in these ceremonies. And it it just smashed me, broke my heart. And I was brought to tears by that, you know, just sat there weeping because of that pain that I felt on behalf of people that had never been taught the truth of God. I'm not saying that, that the Roman Catholic in the pew knows anything about what I just said this morning. Because most don't. Ignorance has always been a premium in that system. That's why the mass was said in Latin for so many years, because it didn't matter whether anything was communicated to the mind or not. It's extremely painful. Extremely painful. And we have to exercise evangelistic compassion. If what you take out of here is we're right and they're wrong, you missed it. You missed it. Shame on you. Get on your face before God and be rebuked if that's what you leave here with. That's not what this is about. This is about truth, the word of God, and the salvation of souls, the eternal destination of millions, even up to one billion, that are still trapped in a sacral religion. We need to be on our faces praying before God. In fact, how many people in this church came out of that system? Do you see how crucial it is? That's what this is about. It's about truth to the mind. It's about the Word of God. Let me close with A quote from J.C. Ryle, found in his book, Light from Old Paths. Listen to Ryle. Whatever men please to think or say, the Romish doctrine of the real presence, if pursued to its legitimate consequences, obscures every leading doctrine of the gospel and damages and interferes with the whole system of Christ's truth. Grant for a moment that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and not a sacrament. Grant that every time the words of consecration are used, the natural body and blood of Christ are present on the communion table under the forms of bread and wine. Grant that everyone who eats that consecrated bread and drinks that consecrated wine does really eat and drink the natural body and blood of Christ. Grant for a moment these things and then see what Momentous consequences result from these premises. You spoil the blessed doctrine of Christ's finished work when He died on the cross. A sacrifice that needs to be repeated is not a perfect or complete thing. You spoil the priestly office of Christ. If there are priests that can offer an acceptable sacrifice to God beside Him, The great high priest is robbed of his glory. You spoil the scriptural doctrine of the Christian ministry. You exalt sinful men into the position of mediators between God and man. You give to the sacramental elements of bread and wine an honor and veneration they were never meant to receive. You produce an idolatry to be abhorred by faithful Christians. Because the host is worshipped. Last but not least, you overthrow the true doctrine of Christ's human nature. If the body born of the Virgin Mary can be in more places than one, at the same time, it is not a body like our own, and Jesus was not the last Adam in the truth of our nature. It's not a small thing. What about somebody who says, well, I think I'm a Christian, but I like going to the Catholic church. I feel at home there. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 21. Quote, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. End quote. At the end of every delivery in the Mass... When the communicant receives the host, the wafer, is required to say one thing to the priest. Amen. Amen. That means let it be so. Affirming that he has received the physical body of Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot more we could say, intended to say a lot more. It's not necessary. The word of God stands. The scripture says, Let God be true and every man a liar. We need to exercise evangelistic compassion. Love and compassion. The highest form of love is telling a person the truth. That's the highest form of love. And if you fail to tell the truth, you haven't exercised love. Can we stand?